Sunday before Christmas, and so I'm going to leave the Gospel of John for just a few weeks, and this week and next week I'll be in Matthew chapter 1, so you can turn there if you'd like. Also, after the first, I believe we set it for the 9th of January, will be the installation Sunday for Dave Zozel as elder here at Bethany, so I'll be I'll be preaching a uh, a sermon around that uh, event. So after after that, <clears throat> we'll be back in John's Gospel for the duration. <clears throat> Follow with me, if you will, beginning at verse eighteen of Matthew chapter one. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Every year... We look forward to this time when we celebrate the birth of Christ and it seems as though our our nation around us, uh, even our political leaders are desiring to do away with what the true meaning of this date really is. In fact, there was absolutely no mention, no mention at the lighting of the national trees, which which started in 1923. And every year, Christ and the reason for Christmas has been mentioned except for this year. His name was not mentioned. God was not mentioned. It was all secular. And that is the tenor of our, of our day. To do away with God from society to strike anything that would resemble speaking of the God of heaven. There are many dates that remain indelibly stamped upon our memories, certainly, especially those that we've lived through. There are some, probably not in this, in this audience, but there are some who would remember December 7th, 1941. I'm sure our sister Claire would remember that date. 
when Pearl Harbor was bombed. Or maybe May 8th or August 15th at the end of World War II. Others might remember February 20th, 1962, when John Glenn became the first man to be rocketed into space and orbit the earth. Or how about November 22nd, 1963? I remember exactly where I was when John Kennedy was shot and killed. Some of you remember that. Who could forget January 28th, 1986, when the Space Shuttle Challenger exploded in midair, killing all of the astronauts on board? And then, I think probably the most memorable date that is stamped on our memories would be September 1st of 2001, when our nation was attacked by terrorists and the World Trade Centers fell and the Pentagon was crashed into and, of course, the Flight 93 that crashed in Pennsylvania. All of these dates are, we remember these things. We remember where we were when they took place. As momentous and earth-shattering as these events were, they pale in comparison to the event that surrounds this time of year. When the birth of God's Son took place, none of the happenings that we have named will ever have the far-reaching effects or significance of the birth of Christ our Lord. And the Bible records some pretty amazing births when you, when you think about it. I mean, think about Isaac, who was born to Abraham and Sarah in their, in their old age. Think about Samson and Samuel and, and John the Baptist. These are all pretty miraculous births. And yet, it is someone who's written, when Mary gave birth to the Savior... When Mary gave birth to the Savior, the fourth greatest day in human history. Why the fourth greatest day? The third greatest day in human history occurred some, 40, some 34 years later when this babe grew into a glorious manhood only to be put to death between a pair of two thieves on a cross. The second greatest day in human history occurred three days later. When the angel told some sorrowing women, he is not here, he is risen, as he said. But the greatest day in human history is yet to happen. The Apostle John tells us of it in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. That will be the greatest day in all of human history. When the babe born in Bethlehem becomes the King of kings and Lord of lords over all the earth. And He is that now. But He will be recognized as that 
and the whole earth will be full of his glory. So the birth of Jesus is the most significant event in all of history. So significant that special attention is given to it in the scriptures. The doctrinal implications of the birth of Jesus are absolutely necessary for salvation and for those who possess it by grace through faith. Now, if I were preaching this whole thing today, which I'm not, I would give you all five points that I found in this text, but I'm only going to center on one of them, and next week I'll come back for another one. And then in subsequent years, we'll pick it up again as Christmas rolls around each year as the Lord tarries his coming. The first thing I want you to see is found in verse 18, is the phenomenal conception of Christ. The phenomenal conception. If there was ever a birth that could be called phenomenal, it would be the birth of Jesus. Now, the reason for this phenomenal aspect of it is that Jesus was virgin born. He was virgin born. This was something that had never happened in all of the course of human history. It is truly a miracle from heaven. And yet there have been over the last several decades... A severe attack, an ever-increasing attack, on the virgin birth. It's always been under attack, but it has escalated somewhat over the last few years from liberal theologians and secularists who seek to deny the fact of who Jesus actually was. The virgin birth of Christ is one of the most attacked teachings of the Bible, and there are several objections that, and arguments that opponents bring up with regard to the virgin birth. Let me give you three of them. The first one is the mythological argument. It has been asserted by some opponents of the gospel that Jesus' miraculous virgin birth is simply a story that was invented by early Christians to dramatize the origin of the Lord. If that were the case, how could such a humble story of a babe born in an obscure town in Israel, in a, in a stable where cattle lived and ate, sheep roamed and were sheltered, how could such a humble story stand up to the magnificent stories of Greek mythology. Consider the difference. For example, the Romans believed that Zeus, the chief god of the Greeks, impregnated Semele without contact, and she conceived Dionysus, who was called the lord of the earth. The Babylonians believed that Tammuz, which is mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 8, was conceived in the princess Semiramis 
by a sunbeam. It's even claimed that the goddess of procreation superintended the conception of of the Assyrian king Sennacherib, who's, who lived 701 to 681 B.C. The conception of Buddha. His mother supposedly saw a great white elephant enter into her belly. How about the Hindu god Vishnu, who after several reincarnations from a fish to a tortoise to a boar and to a lion, descended into the womb of Devaki and was born, and, and Krishna then was born. Wow. There's even a legend that says that Alexander the Great was virgin born by the power of Zeus through a snake that impregnated his mother. These are wild stories that the Greeks held to be true. Another writer states the goddess Athena, who was born of no mother, she didn't have any mother, sprang out of the head of Zeus, full grown and in full armor. She was the god goddess of war. Or the conception of the birth of, of Augustus Caesar, who was considered to be the savior of the world, it was said that his mother visited in the temple of Apollo, was visited by a serpent. And Augustus was born. The New Testament warns us not to pay attention to such myths. Listen to the scriptures. Paul says to Timothy, have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Don't regard them. Peter speaks of this when he says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Satan is devious and he is deceptive and he brings these things up in the minds of people to try and, and attempt to counterfeit the birth of Christ so that it becomes commonplace or simply a legendary myth. Number two is the biological objection. With some, the chief problem with the virgin virgin birth is that it violates the natural processes of birth. Liberal theologians have insisted that it is a biological impossibility to be virgin born. They say it didn't happen and therefore it has no theological significance. But the New Testament does not suggest that Jesus was born without biological processes. The seed was placed in the womb of the virgin by God himself. And the biological processes of birth then were carried on. Just like any other person except for the fact that it was a supernatural birth 
It was, it was what's called a paranormal reproductive process. Something that goes beyond the normal scientific understanding of birth and procreation. It was a process of supernatural power, not natural power. When we read the biblical account of the virgin birth, we are dealing with the supernatural God who brings about his decrees in a supernatural way. He can, but does not have to stay within the bounds of human processes. He can, but he doesn't have to. The beginning and existence of the universe and the human race is a testament to the way God operates. What kind of natural process was it when God spoke the world and the universe into existence? What kind of natural process was it when he molded out of the dust and the dirt and the mud of the earth a man and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life? Nothing natural about that. This is the way our God operates. So which is more difficult for God to create the universe or bring about a birth in the womb of a virgin? Neither, because nothing is too difficult for God. Our supernatural God supersedes the natural order of even the functions of the things that he created. MacArthur writes, modern science even speaks of parthenogenesis, which comes from a Greek term meaning virgin born. In the world of honeybees, unfertilized eggs develop into drones or males. Artificial parthenogenesis has been successful with unfertilized eggs of silkworms. The eggs of sea urchins and marine worms have begun to develop when placed in various salt solutions. Nothing like that has ever come close to the accounting uh, for human beings. All such parthenogenesis is impossible within the human race. Science, like mythology, has no explanation for the virgin birth. God is not unaware of the common objections to the virgin birth. Even Mary herself had an objection concerning the biological possibility of this happening. Turn to Luke 1 with me. Notice beginning at verse 30. Beginning verse 30. This is Luke's account of the angel coming to Mary. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now listen to her her objection. And Mary said to the angel, 
how will this be since I'm a virgin? She knew. This is a human impossibility. Since I'm a virgin. And the angel answered. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore the child to be born will be called Holy. The Son of God. That's how it happened. It was a supernatural event. Not a natural one. God is able to do that which appears impossible to men. Even that which is contrary to natural laws and processes. So you have the mythological objection. You have the biological objection. Finally is the scriptural objection. There is There are some who claim that the scriptures actually object to the virgin birth. Some critics place great stress on certain phrases that seem to refer to Joseph as Jesus' natural father. For example, Luke chapter 2 verse 33. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. So that text calls Joseph his father. Luke uh, 2:48. And when his parents saw that they were aston- saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, this is when they left him in Jerusalem and they came back, "Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress." Again calling Joseph his father. Matthew 13 verse 55 says, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph, Simon and Judas? These scriptures are not a problem to the truth of the virgin birth when we remember that Joseph is spoken of as the Lord's father only in a legal sense. He was legally His father, but biologically he was not. No matter what the objection, there is an ever-increasing professing of Christians who deny the virgin birth and consequently the sinless life of Christ. You see, that's what it's really about. Because if Jesus was not virgin born, he was just like you or me. And he could not have lived a sinless life. Why would someone want to be identified with someone who makes such blatant claims of deity if he were no more than a mortal man? His disciples and Jesus own claims of himself professing to be far more, professed him to be far more than a mortal man. Even his enemies knew and understood his claims. Matthew chapter 16, Simon Peter, Jesus said, Who do men say that I am? Well, you're a great prophet. Some say you're John the Baptist. Well, who do you say I am? Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. They believed it. They could see it. John chapter 5, 
This is why the Jews were seeking the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They understood what he was saying. Those who do not believe and those who those who don't believe will not change the fact or the truth about the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, or the ascension, or even the second coming of Christ. It will still happen as he said. It doesn't change the judgment at the great white throne. Paul writes in Romans 3, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Everything that God says is true. It will come to pass as He said. Just as it came to pass in in history, it will come to pass in future events. Popular opinion is not a good source for truth. Truth must be based on something greater than ourselves. Something greater than our society. Something greater than our culture. Truth must be based upon the authority of God Himself. And the the authority God has given to us for truth, for objective truth, is this book, the Scriptures. Nothing else will do. Virgin birth is an essential, foundational doctrine of the faith. Without it, Christ would not be sinless, and he could not have been a sacrifice then for sinners. It was not the potency of Joseph that generated this child. It was the power of God. That generated him. Had it been Joseph. We would all still be in our sins. And without hope. So. That gives us a good place to start. Now I want to back up. Just a little bit here. To verse 16. Of our. Of our text in Matthew. Chapter 1. And. And bring about uh, some things that are important with regard to the virgin birth of Christ. And that is the, the genealogy. Now we're not going to read all of the genealogy. It starts in, in verse 2 with Abraham. Showing that Christ was indeed from the lineage of Abraham. Which God said he would. Remember? God said I'm going. You'll have a seed that will bless, be a blessing to the entire earth. Well, that seed was Christ. Came from Abraham's line. So the virgin birth is clearly found, however, in the genealogy of Jesus, which Matthew describes in the royal line. From Abraham to David to Christ. That's found in verses 2 through 15. What I want you to see is in verse 16 and the fact of the virgin conception of Jesus that forces 
a grammatical change in the genealogy at the end of verse 16. Notice what verse 16 says. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So let's do a little bit of an a little bit of unpacking here on this verse because it speaks so clearly about the virgin birth. <clears throat> Notice that it says, and Jacob, the father of Joseph. Jacob was, this Jacob was the father of, of Joseph. It was not talking about the Jacob of old, but this was Joseph's father, Jacob. And this verse tells us, the word father tells us that Jacob fathered Joseph. That is, it literally means to beget, to bring forth, to produce. Jacob produced Joseph. It is an active verb, meaning that Jacob, Joseph's father, was active in the begetting of Joseph. Now that same word, father, is used in verse 2 all the way down through to verse 16 where it says that Jacob fathered Joseph. It's used all the way down. The father of, the father of, they beget, they produced this line from Abraham all the way down until you get to Christ. And then it stops. And there is no reference of anyone fathering Christ. Isn't that interesting? Notice the phrase where it says, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now, who is it speaking of when it says, of whom? Who is that referring to? There are some clues given. The literal reading says, out of the midst of whom? Out of the midst of whom Jesus was born. To remove further doubt, he makes the relative pronoun of whom feminine. So that there's no mistaking who he's talking about. He's talking about Mary. He is not talking about Joseph. Some would say, no, he's talking about Joseph. Joseph was his father, you see, trying to... Eliminate the supernatural birth of the virgin birth. But not so. It's a reference to Mary, not to Joseph. In fact, Matthew goes to great lengths to single out Joseph as the husband of Mary. Not the father of Jesus, but the husband of Mary. And it indicates Joseph's legal position in the family, but not as his father. And then there's a a gesture 
as we move from verse verse 16 through verse 17, which speaks of the generations, which goes 14 from Abraham to David and David to the deportation of Babylon and then from uh, the deportation to Christ. Then we come to verse 18 and there is an explanation now given about the birth of Christ and a gesture made with regard to how this took place. How did this come about? If Joseph was not the actual biological father of Jesus, which the text most clearly speaks to, but only the husband of Mary, then how did the birth of Christ take place? Who was his father? Because it does not say he was beget or produced in this text. So verse 18 then begins to explain how this took place. Now the birth of Jesus took place this way. She was found to be with child. How? From the Holy Spirit. The remark is made as a formality or as a sign of intention concerning the Messiah, concerning the Christ. Notice how Matthew addresses the fact of Jesus' birth. He's just spent 17 verses authenticating the lineage of Jesus from an earthly standpoint. And now he addresses the heavenly line in one small part of the verse. This is the parallel account of his true father's side. The heavenly side. Yes, he came from a line, from the line of Abraham. But he was from heaven. God was his father. This was God's work. Both Matthew and Luke emphasized the work of the Holy Spirit. Listen to it. And the angel of the Lord appeared to to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from, from, that word from, is a very distinct preposition. It doesn't just mean from as as in the edge of something. It means from the midst of something. So if you add those words in, literally, that which is conceived in her is from the midst of the Holy Spirit. He came from the midst of God. Luke 1 verse 35, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Come upon you, overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, Son of God. Two very descriptive words are given here. The words come upon means to overtake or to operate in someone. It's very much like what happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon the heart of an individual and opens their heart to the gospel and they're born again. He's doing a work inside. He's, he's, do, he's accomplishing something within. In other words, the Holy Spirit would overpower her 
and do his work of conception in her by his superior omnipotent power. He would create the seed from heaven that would bring forth God's son. Think about it. It's, it's a marvelous thought. The word overshadow means to throw over something, to envelop in a shadow. It's the same word used in Matthew chapter 17 verse 5 when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration and the, the cloud of brightness overshadowed them. In other words, Mary would be enveloped in the same glorious presence that Moses was enveloped in on the mountain when God gave him the tablets of the law. The same kind of thing. It speaks of God's immediate presence and God's power. And the same word is used, now listen to this, the same word is used in Acts chapter 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Same word. So when they were in the upper room waiting for the Spirit to come, the Spirit came with a mighty rushing wind and overshadowed them, overpowered them, so that they were filled with the Spirit and began to speak and to proclaim the gospel in, in many different languages. Miraculous thing. When the Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. This, there is an intentional emphasis in both of these gospels that Jesus had no earthly father, but that God himself was his father. And as we study the Gospel of John, we will see over and over how many times Jesus refers to his Father being God in heaven. So what is the, what is the emphasis? The emphasis for our Christmas celebration is the fact that our Lord was not born like other people. He was born supernaturally. He was, he was conceived supernaturally and, and in the natural process of giving birth, she brought forth God's Son, a sinless individual. God Himself in human flesh. So the virgin birth of Christ assures us that God has done all the work necessary to provide for us a salvation that is sure, that cannot fail. The child in Bethlehem grew and became a man who lived a sinless life. Why? Because he was virgin born. He did not have a sinful nature like you and I have. It tells us that if God can create in the womb of a virgin a sinless Savior, then He can effect a full redemption that will one day bring us to heaven. And that is the good news of Christmas, is it not? And that's why Jesus could say to Pilate, 
I was born for this. I was born to die. That I might live. And that those who follow me and believe in me and on me would live as well. That's the message we need to get out to Chris, for Christmas. Oh, there's so many things that I could say. We're living in times when we're living in times when secular ideologies are taking over and invading the church and invading the gospel and coupling itself to the gospel, making the gospel no gospel at all. And the gospel is very clear and it's very simple. The gospel is that the Savior came, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death that all who believe in Him might have everlasting life. That's the gospel. It goes beyond ethnicity. It goes beyond society. It goes beyond culture. It goes beyond race. It is for all who would believe. That's the message for Christmas. We'll carry on there next week. There are other things that we can see here. So let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day and for the emphasis of uh, Christmas and for the record that you have given us of the truth of the birth of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would remind us, Lord, what this season is really about. And I pray that you would use it to speak to hearts of people that we meet, that we, our families, our friends, we might go beyond what they hear on the streets or on the news or from the political scene. They might hear from us that the real reason for this celebration is because God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that He might redeem those that were under the law. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, just an announcement or two before.